This is the Blackout Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Blackout Podcast where I get to talk to amazing people that do amazing things. And today I'm super happy to have Chris. I need to make sure I get your last name right. Chris Jaworski. You got it. It's Jaworski or Gaworski. Hard or soft G either way. So <laughs> Thanks for coming on today, Chris. No problem. Uh, we met a couple of years ago when I volunteered for the Finn. Mm-hmm. And I got to shoot with your amazing team. I learned so much in the process. I remember you came in uh, actually to the Finn office to talk about how to cover an event. And I learned so much from your presentation. And then just shooting uh people like you know shooting the event i learned mm. so much so super happy to have you here thanks for coming in thank you i'm really happy to be here a little bit of background tell me more about yourself so um i began my career um as a stills photographer uh and i started working in the industry a little bit before the digital revolution um i did things a, a bit backwards than most photographers uh did i uh before I went back to school, um, I started doing uh, some production assisting for photographers who inspired me in in the region, uh, and that would be you know David Muir, Janet Kimber, Shannon Henniger, and this would have been in the very early two thousands. Um, what sparked my interest in photography uh, was in the in the late nineties as a teenager. Uh, I did a lot of uh, painting, oil painting, acrylic painting. Um, and, um, I was really interested in, in exploring the, the synesthesia connection between, v- you know, visuals and sound. Uh, and then, um, when I was 17, 16, a friend of my parents, uh, who is a, a doctor, uh, told me about his friend who was moving in from Toronto back to Nova Scotia, um, and he said he was a photographer uh, and did some work for, you know, jazz, like Montreal. I don't know if it was the Montreal Jazz Festival. It was one of the jazz festivals. And and uh, he had uh, a piece hanging in his place. And uh, he said, you know, my friend's a photographer. You should meet this guy and see what he does. And uh, sure enough, um, I did end up meeting this guy. His name's David Muir. He's a phenomenal photographer. And... Um, David just said, you know, I'm setting up my studio in my home when I uh, move back to Nova Scotia. You should come take a look at what I do. And uh, I'll never forget it. I, I went to his studio, saw what he was shooting on, on medium format film and these amazing images. Um, and uh, I went out literally the same day to a photo store that's not doesn't exist anymore. It was on Blower Street called Reed Suite. And bought my very first camera. It was a Minolta SRT 201. I went across the street to Carsan Mosier's and bought a ton of film. And I shot like crazy. And when I got the film developed, not a single picture turned out. <laughs> Everything was, you know, either so underexposed it was black or, or you know, or so overexposed it was white. So I went back to David and I was like, what did I do wrong? You know, what's going on? And so he kind of took me under his wing and showed me how everything from the basics of photography to the basics of, you know, the importance of communicating a message within that frame Mm. and introduced the idea of um, telling a story within this little box and this window and and the importance of that story. And that's what makes good photography Mm. is photography that, 
uh, says something. It's it's more than a pretty picture. A pretty picture becomes irrelevant really quickly. Uh, a picture with a message and a picture that makes a, um, a viewer ask a question or um, wonder what is the story or can gather what that story is is a successful picture. So, you know, I, I was this, uh, you know, this teenager, early 20s, you know, hanging out and in, in watching him work. And then he introduced me to uh, a photographer named Janet Kimber, who uh, needed a production assistant. She was a commercial photographer and doing a lot of work in, in Halifax and New York and Toronto. Um, and then I got to see how, you know, that you could turn that into a career. And, and I got to see how um, you could make something commercial still be a piece of artwork uh, and still be something interesting and relevant. It all didn't have to be boring soap ads and it didn't have to be um, stuff that was just based on sales. You could, you could make people laugh with your images. You could, you could uh, inspire people to consider concepts that they hadn't before through imagery um, and, uh, so I started doing a lot of work with Janet, which was a lot of hauling lighting gear, <laughs> learning the basics of, you know, locations, watching her talk to clients mm -hmm. and get work. Um, and then I realized that, you know, as valuable as all of that was, mm -hmm. um, I wanted to go back to school, uh, and I wanted to, to, you know, there, there were holes in, in what I was learning. Like I was learning so much and so many important things. Mm -hmm. But there were still things that um, I was kind of uh, little holes in my in my knowledge, and uh, so I went to NASCAD first for a little bit, and um, uh, took some photo courses there, uh, and I found NASCAD extremely valuable in teaching you how to use a darkroom, how to uh, you know process, develop your own prints. It, it NASCAD was great in teaching me how to take an image of something that one might even consider mundane and um, make a piece of art that expressed something mm. and make something that that actually was worth saying and, and with what was available around you. Um, now, at that time, and I don't want to say anything bad about NASCAD, but at that time, um, the digital revolution was kind of starting. Um, commercial photographers were suddenly trained trading in their 35 mil bodies for DSLR 35s and it hadn't caught up to medium format yet. Mm. Um, and NASCAD was a little more at that time, uh, a little more poo poo on the technology and, and, you know, who, who needs Photoshop? You just learn how to do it right in camera, which is a valuable thing too. Like mm. I try and get everything as close to on camera before I start the post-production um, but I realized that I also, and the other thing that NASCAD didn't have in their bag of tricks and wasn't very strong at, at that time, uh, was how to turn this amazing skill that they were teaching you into something that you could generate a, an income off of, oh, yeah. uh, and not be a sellout, uh, and still make, you know, beautiful images, but different ways, different, um, different ends of the business, mm. how you could do, you know, there are different types of photographer, photography that you can zero in and focus on, um, how to start using that as a trade. Mm. Uh, and so I went to NSCC um, because of my um, uh, experience at NASCAD, I skipped the, the foundation year, which 
when I went through the program was called ACAP and went right into the photo program. Uh, and I did, uh, you know, their photography program. And then I went back for an extra year at the, for the advanced diploma in photo two and digital imaging. And I learned uh, much more on uh, the business of photography. I learned uh, the um, technology, which is really important. Um, I think NASCAD, when I was going through, was using these big Speedotron boxes, which were good. And we were still using those same Speedotron boxes at NSCC. Mm -hmm. But we got to learn different, uh, you know, technology was moving forward and um, more advanced cameras. The, you know, the digital thing was a huge thing. They were... Uh, the community college was on that. They were, uh, they were, they really had the foresight to know that everything was going to go digital. It was going to change the industry. Mm. Uh, and so I uh, completed my education at NSCC. And while I was um, a student at NSCC, I started getting my first actual clients um, because. I had this advantage that I felt very comfortable through my years of assisting David and Janet. Mm. And I was like, okay, cool. I can start to put these things in motion and, and I can start to, to actually try and tackle some clients and try and, and get some work while I'm going to school to help pay for all of this. So I started shooting for uh, a couple of magazines. Um, uh, I shot for the coast a couple of times, but that, that was more for exposure. Um, I started doing some work for a magazine that does no longer no longer exists anymore. Um, uh, Nine hundred two magazine, which was uh, my first fashion spread uh, editorial fashion spread and first oh, cover. Wow. Yeah, it was it was a big deal to see that one kind of come out because there was a, a magazine store on Spring Garden that had this these big windows, and they just the day that the the magazine was released, they just plastered the window with my cover and so I was that was pretty cool to see as a student um and then you know kept doing some assisting for a little while too uh and started a, a business partnership with a fellow student um we had the idea that gear and cameras are extremely expensive mm. so uh we decided that if we pooled our resources and worked together for the first couple of years we could accomplish a client list and a portfolio with our combined gear that was professional enough to go out there and give us a head start. Mm. Um, and then, uh, oh, how many years did I go through there? A few. <laughs> a few. A few, yeah. And then, uh, yeah, it would have been 2007, I, I started working on my own mm. and started my own business. And, um, yeah, uh, so now I primarily shoot uh, editorial portraiture. Um I love uh, images that explore people and their stories. Mm. And I talked about that synesthesia connection when I was a, um, a high school student. I still, I love the idea of the uh, incredible art form that is visual and music um, because music has had a huge impact on my life. Mm. Uh, and exploring that that connection with a camera was something that that I loved doing, and I still love doing. And and I've made personal projects. Whoops, uh, personal projects on uh, on the matter. And I, I've you know gotten to work in the music industry, producing images uh, that uh, explore uh, that connection between musician music through a visual means. Mm -hmm. And it's it's this great um, thing that I love to that I love to to 
explore. Talking about uh, state of mind. So these two photos are from that. Uh-huh. Um, from the from the book, actually. Do you want to tell me a little bit of a story? But let's start with him. Sure. Um, so first, I'll, I guess I'll talk about what the state of mind project was. Yes. Um, I realized the value quite right away that in order to, when I started working commercially, I didn't want photography um, and videography to just become another job. I didn't want to come home after a project like the guy who comes home from work and is just like, oh, I had a tough day and I just, you know, I just want to veg out. Like I wanted to remain excited about that thing that I loved. And so I realized I had to, on my own, work on projects that uh, kept me interested and inspired where I wasn't bound by the art direction of a client, which is a very good thing, but um, uh, where I was in control and exploring something just purely creative for myself. Mm. Uh, and it went back to that. I love taking a camera and going through the process of examining what music does to a person who hears it, what music does to a person who plays it and makes it. And so I started in, it would have been 2006. I had this idea uh, and it was like, I'm going to take a portrait, portraits of musicians. And the pictures are going to be of these people. But what I really want to do is I want to kind of explore where they go in their mind when they lose themselves while they're making the music that they're making. Mm. Um, because, you know, when you see somebody perform, they're playing a show or something, sometimes their eyes are closed, you know, sometimes they're swaying. You can tell they're not, they're very present, but they're very elsewhere too. Mm. Uh, and every person that I approached for the project that said, I want to, I want them to go there knew exactly what I was talking about. But the cool thing is every single person said that was an entirely different thing for them. Mm. Like every experience was so very different. Uh, and so what I started to do, it took me seven years to shoot 18 portraits. And I wanted to take musicians of uh, different backgrounds, different music types, uh, genders, ethnic origins, everything, uh, to prove that this was a universal thing, mm. but to show how different it was to everybody. And, and even though it didn't matter what your skill level, whether you played your ukulele at the edge of your bed uh, <laughs> for, you know, that release or whether you are <laughs> playing sold out shows to thousands, I, it, I wanted both of those people, those types of people um, to explore that it is just as valuable and therapeutic and mm. can be used as a coping mechanism in this wonderful release. Indeed. And so that's what I, uh, that's what the State of Mind Portrait Series is all about. These are some of the prints, these prints behind us came from this book, right? Yes, yeah. Uh, so there were 18 portraits altogether. Uh, and what we did is we tried to capture what that place was when they lose themselves while they're playing. And to do that, it was a lot of talking before we got anybody in front of a camera. Mm. Uh, and that's why it took so many years to to only shoot 18 portraits is, you know, every subject with a lot of phone calls with, a lot of, you know, sit downs for coffees or beers. And the process would be that we would sit down and first I would try and have them describe what that place would be if it was a physical space or if, if, if it was a place that we could capture with a camera. Mm. 
and then what we would do is we would go out and try and find these spaces or find means to create these spaces. Uh, so for example, this guy here, um, he talked, uh, his sound is very gritty, kind of grungy. Uh, and, and he talked about like grit and wear, but he also talked about these underlying tones of like opulence and, um, like fanciness for mm. lack of a better word. And so when you look at, at this particular picture, um, we shot it at the Lord Nelson Georgian lounge and it was just before they did, they, they revamped that room, you know, gave it a little facelift. And so you can tell there's some dings and scratches and it is a beautiful opulent, uh, room ballroom, mm. but it's definitely worn a little and it's, you know, got some wear and tear. And so, uh, we got the the Lord Nelson's permission to go in and shoot there, mm. uh, and uh, um, yeah, tried to create that with his guitar. And I, I think we got we got a few funny looks. I don't know if they understood what we were wanting to do, and then they saw us dragging guitars and, and amplifiers in uh, into the hotel. And what was the setup here? What kind camera did you use? Uh, on that, that was a fairly early uh, shot. Um, if I recall, that would have been a Canon 1DS Mark II. Mm. Um, I would have shot that with, uh, a Norman 2000 watt second power pack. And I probably would have had, actually, I remember the setup now. It's there, there was one head that was, um, pointing into an octobank. And then there was another one that was, that just had a bit, that was shot through scrim at a lower lower intensity to give a bit of a fill. Mm. Um, yeah. And there was another shot we did from the same shoot in a different portion of the room where I think we used a, th a third head as just some, you know, just a dead fill mm. in the corner of the room. On this one. So uh, this particular portrait, I really like um, because it is very close. It, re it, it visually is kind of close to what this person talked about that experience being this uh she said it was very organic very there was this brightness uh and this luminance from around them and it was this connection to nature mm. uh, and this person grew up uh around that lake actually uh and spent childhoods you know around that lake exploring as a kid having fun and felt like that organic um, connection to nature and that mm. flowingness of like, you know, water and the elements, mm. um, were, were so strong when they were able to lose themselves in their music. And so we actually went to that lake at dusk and, um, we decided to have the bass guitar cable look like it was plugged right into the lake we just dropped a, a cable into the water. Um, and, uh, just had uh, that person work at getting to that place. Uh, and that was one thing I wanted every subject matter or every subject to kind of do is like the, the conditions of these portraits are, they had to be in them physically. Mm. Um, if they were uh, played an instrument, I would have liked that. I want that instrument uh, in the shot. And they had to try and get to the place where the photograph was about. Working with Adam, he was very conceptual, mm. and he said, "There's no way we can turn this into an actual photographical or photographic space." 
Um, and he said, I think of ideas and I think of concepts and I think of things that me and our band went through while we were on our first nationwide tour. And I think of our loves and our frustrations and our relationships and our lyrics. Mm. And, um, so for him, what I did is I just, I bought a nine foot seamless black backdrop and a pack of sidewalk chalk and, I gave him the keys to my apartment, rolled it across the floor, and said, make whatever you want that symbolizes that. And we used that as a backdrop. Mm. Um, and it was very cool to see what he came up with. Yeah. No, no. I love the photo. And <clears throat> why did he decide to call it a state of, my, a state of mind? I think because uh, it's a bit of a play on words. Mm. Um, I think you get to a state of mind, which is very powerful and music will alter your state of mind mm. but it's such a personal thing for each and every individual um that i wanted to show how it was owned by the person who went there and mm. owned by that person who decided to let music take them that place mm. so we went from state of mind to state of mind because you know it's my it's place my yeah yeah exactly <laughs> it's my state um and that's the thing so most people that know you know you for photos and videos but you actually have a musical background too do you want to talk a little bit about that yeah sure um oh my gosh where to begin so um both my parents are very musical uh, my dad was uh, a drummer in many rock bands um my mom uh, in the late 70s, early 80s, was uh, a classically trained pianist who still has a nine-foot concert grand in her living room. Um, they're divorced, no longer together, but their their influences uh, from childhood and onward to till today have been very strong on me. And there was a definitive moment when music became a huge part of my life, and I realized that it wasn't just something my parents did that it had an impact on me and made me want to participate in that. And uh, so it would have been the early 1990s. Mm. Um, I was, uh, I had mentioned my parents got divorced. Uh, my dad went to live in the small farming community that I was from. And my mom went to live a little closer to Winnipeg. This is in southern Manitoba, which is where I was you know, born and raised. And uh, I uh, had a tough time as, you know, the, the early teenager deciding, you know, you love your parents. You love both your – you want to spend time with both of them. You have a deep amount of affection for both of them. They were both wonderful parents. Uh, I made the decision to, for a couple of years, live with my dad and uh, his new wife. And, uh, and you know, uh, and I was uh, – there for a couple of years and my, two of my younger brothers lived with my mom and uh it was the 93 i think uh mom met and fell in love with her uh amazing current husband ward and uh he uh was uh, my mom was an icu nurse he was a physician and uh he uh got an offer to work in halifax and um the situation at my dad's house was one that it was filled with a lot of love and, uh, as my mom's, uh, but there was a financial strain there too. Uh, my dad had started working as a, you know, truck driver, wasn't 
there wasn't a lot of money. My, uh, uh, I had a new baby sister in that household and there was another one on the way. And I knew that I was going to be a bit, uh, not a burden. Um, I, I knew that my presence in that household was going to be felt financially in a very big way, especially mm. going into your teens. Mm. And so I made the decision to go uh, with my mom and my two other brothers to live in Halifax. And uh, it was a very tough decision. Mm. Um, I didn't want to be away from either parent. I didn't want to be from e- away from either you know side of, of that uh, my family. I love them both. But uh, when I was getting ready, the weekend we were getting ready to move, um, my dad and my uncle, um, I think the, the album was originally my uncle Rob's, uh, uh, who, you know, spent a lot of time living with us. Uh, it was my dad's brother. Uh, he, uh, gave me this album. It was BB King live at the Apollo. Mm. And he said, you know, I noticed you like some things, some horns in it. I did. I was, was in a weird music as a kid, like, you know, Frank Sinatra, <laughs> Harry Connick Jr. Big band swing was a, was a thing that I liked. Um, but you know, just liked it. And he said, there's some horns in this. I think you might like it. And um, I thought it was a really genuine gift. And I thought it was, it was great. But I was like, oh, this blues stuff. I mean, what is, what is this? I don't, uh, you know, I don't, it was a nice thought. And of course I thank them. Uh, and we were in Nova Scotia for a couple of months and I was feeling really homesick. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was digging through boxes of the stuff that we'd brought with us. And I found that album. And uh, I put that CD in the player, and I thought, you know what? I'll bet you I would have listened to Dad or Rob listen to this. I, I'll, it would be a nice reminder. Mm-hmm. And the first tune that came on, it was a song called All Over Again. And the song had absolutely nothing to do with what I was going through. But the sound, the way it was delivered, that tone, like the, the first note that... B.B. King played on his guitar, Lucille, was just this so empathetic and so supportive. And so it felt like it didn't matter that the song had nothing to do with what I was going through. It felt like there was a hand on my shoulder Mm. and there was this empathy and there was this, this, it felt amazing. I'd never felt anything like that before. And I was transported and, and I remember thinking, how do I do that? I, I need to figure out how to, to make that sound. And, and I want to express myself like that. And, mm. and, um, uh, my stepdad Ward, who is incredibly supportive and amazing, helped me buy my first guitar and got me involved in con- guitar lessons. And I had an extremely frustrated guitar teacher because <laughs> <laughs> all I wanted to do was put on BB King records after that and listen to BB King. He was, he was, um, his sound, like every single day throughout my entire teenage years and 20s and into my 30s, and uh, I'd listen to his voice and his sound and his guitar every single day um, because that music just spoke to me. And, and, you know, I learned how to play listening to B.B. King, mm-hmm. and that opened my eyes to other artists like T-Bone Walker, Guitar Slim, um Muddy Waters, Lonnie Johnson, and then, you know, going way back, you get curious where did these sounds come from, you learn about Robert Johnson, you learn, and these sounds that were just so amazing uh, by these artists, uh, and uh, so, yeah, I, I started playing, um, 
me and my brother Paul both. Uh, and I remember the first time I realized I could take myself to that place when I first heard the BB King mm. record. Uh, I was, I had a really rough day. Uh, and uh, I was sitting at the edge of my bedroom, or is sitting at the edge of my bed in my bedroom, and you know, teenage angst. <laughs> you're, you're frustrated. Your you know, hormones are flying all over the place. Yeah. You had a crush on a girl. She doesn't like you. So it's just the way you got the blues. <laughs> and I remember I had my acoustic, uh, the one Ward bought me, uh, tuned down to uh, a drop D. Uh, and I took a bottleneck slide and I just ran it up to the 12th fret and I heard that, that, that I made a noise that just made me go, holy crap, there it is. Uh, and immediately felt great and immediately had that just amazing expressive, you know, release and found like, you know, that I could console myself by making the sounds that all of these idols and my heroes were making uh, and then, of course, I there hasn't been, I don't think, a single day where I haven't picked up a guitar and um, played. And the goal is always to get to that place. You're, uh, you're chasing that wonderful, amazing feeling. Mm. Um, and uh, I remember I met B.B. King um, in the early 2000s. And uh, it, was, uh, it was an amazing experience to meet your idol. Uh, and, uh, it's so crazy because so rarely are the people that we look up to and really starstruck with and really idolize, they're rarely the people we want them to be. Mm. They're regular people. Um, and I got to say this man was as gracious and genuine and beautiful a human being as you would want. He gave some totally starstruck 23 year old, um, kid you know, a few minutes of his time when he didn't need to. And, uh, uh, it was, uh, it was very cool. And, uh, yeah, so I, I do play guitar <laughs> and, uh, I do, uh, I get to carry on the tradition of making music that my parents do. Wow. Um, now, so let's go back to photography, right? Okay. <laughs> so, uh, you, Started the studio. How did the thing with Finn happen? How Finn? So that's Atlantic International Film Festival. Yes. How did that happen? How did that happen? Yeah. Um, that happened in two thousand and eight. Um, so my wife, who is also self-employed, uh, she began her career as a graphic designer, and uh, now years later uh, owns a, a boutique branding agency. Um, one of her, uh, first few jobs in the industry, she was the in-house graphic designer for the, uh, Finn International Atlantic Film Festival. Uh, and at that time it was called, uh, just the Atlantic Film Festival. Mm. Um, they were doing some work with, um, a smaller festival that they managed that at that time was called Viewfinders. It's now called Finn Kids. Kids, yeah. Uh, and, uh, they, the photographer, I believe that they normally used for event coverage was not able to make it or not able to commit. And it was very last minute. And the marketing and communication manager, um, who at that time, her name was Kristen Frazier, mm -hmm. um, decided that, uh, asked Brittany if she knew anybody. And she's like, well, yeah, you know, my just boyfriend at the time, we weren't mm. married yet. She said, is a, a photographer. And um, 
they have been a client that I've been very happy to have and been very grateful for. Um, and I'm very happy with how happy they are with my work. Uh, and so Viewfinders, I think, was a week-long festival in oh, those wow. days. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was even the film festival was much longer back then. Okay. Um, and so by myself, I remember I, I had a small budget. By myself, I ended up covering the entire festival. Um, and then uh, I decided that I wanted to take a very different approach to shooting an event. Mm. I wanted to shoot it the way, not like a, a wedding or not like a, you know most event photographers where you're just capturing what's going on. I mm. wanted to go in and actually shoot make little image, little vignettes, little image stories, take five different types of shots and tell the story of what's happening and unfolding. Mm. And I liked the challenge that these events didn't necessarily lend themselves to that. <laughs> <laughs> so you found yourself in precarious situations and sometimes, you know, you had to really learn how to very gently and nicely annoy someone and it paid off. They absolutely loved the work mm. and, uh, uh, I submitted it to Kristen Frazier, and uh, they were so happy with it. A week later, I got called back in to speak to, I think, I remember sitting in the office of a lady named Leah Ronaldo, uh, and she said, if we give you a bigger budget, will you shoot the big festival, and what would it take to do something like that for that particular festival? And for that, I'm like, well, I would need a team. Um, and it, it would start off as a smaller team. I think I hired only three or four other people. Mm. And I said, I'd want to get a little budget to take time before the festival to kind of train them on how to look at event capture the way that in a little bit of a different light in a different way. Mm. Um, and they were okay with that. And so we produced that film festival, um, photography package uh for them and they were very happy with it and then the next year they uh, i was really um quite honored and happy to land the actual account uh, for the main image which was a, a triptych uh, three photos um that um were part of an ad campaign in their main image and uh that was uh, very cool because I remember as an assistant, the f one of the, the photographers I worked for worked on that account and it was a big deal. It was run through. When she shot it, it was extreme group. Um, and, uh, you know, it was, it was one of those things as, a, as an assistant you looked up to and go, wow, one, one day, day maybe. <laughs> uh, yeah. and, then, <laughs> and then you find out, holy crap, I'm, I'm doing I'm it. Doing it. I'm, <laughs> Yeah. Wow, Chris, I'm going to have you back and I'll make sure you have a guitar so people can actually fucking oh, hear that sure. play. But here's my last one. What advice would you give someone that wants to make a career out of their camera? Um, my advice, ironically, doesn't, is going to, my advice isn't going to focus on business training, although that's essential. Mm. Um my advice to somebody who wants to start a career using their camera is to shoot personal work and shoot work that is fulfilling to them and not client work. And that's twofold. Mm. Number one, that's going to keep your passion for what you're doing alive. That's going to keep photography and videography from becoming a job. Uh, the second thing that that's going to do is that's going to bring you the commercial work that's going to pay your bills. So you can have commercial clients with impressive names and things like that. But sometimes you're going to find that those clients 
aren't re- that's not very fulfilling stuff like a telephone on a seamless white backdrop <laughs> is <laughs> might pay rent for January but it's nothing that's going to go in your portfolio it's not creative it doesn't you know may not speak to you uh, it'll showcase your skill as a technician but the thing that will get you that job is an art director calling you up and going wow I saw some of your work in a gallery the other day and you shoot great stuff or if you knock on their door and go I'd like to sit and come into your boardroom and show you my portfolio uh, and they see some work that's really going to shine is the work that you pour your heart and soul into, which is your personal stuff. Mm. And it's going to look great. And that's what's going to attract those people that are going to hire you for maybe, you know, a soap ad or, um, you know, (laughs) and not all commercial work is boring stuff, (laughs) but Uh, but there is a large portion of it that is. Um, but I love editorial portraiture, which is, you know, commercial work and it's mm. magazine work. And, you know, sometimes you get some really creative stuff coming out of that. Mm. Um, but my advice to anybody who wants to use a camera, whether it be a stills camera, a motion camera, uh, whether you want to be a photographer, videographer, filmmaker, shoot your own stuff, shoot the things that you're passionate about, you're going to shine. And that shine is going to attract the work that's going to build your career. Mm. And then of course, get to know the actual business end of things because <laughs> you don't want to go broke. <laughs> oh my God. Thank you so much, Chris. No problem. Um, like I said, I'm definitely going to have you back and I'm definitely going to cool. make sure you bring your guitar there. Yes, I'll bring a guitar next time for sure. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> no problem. This is the Blackout Podcast. for listening.